0: The Veil of Darkness The Forge of the Evil Heart Prelude A hand had been nailed to the library door. It appeared gaunt and shrunken, a thing all but withered to the bone, and before it, Cairn of Kassada paused. When he examined its lines in the morning air, a sharp, almost irresistible urge began to build in him. He found himself wanting to touch it to place his own hand fingertip to fingertip against the decaying flesh the hand was positioned so that anyone standing before the entrance could not fail to see it beyond this the building itself loomed fortress-like its massive stones dominated the hill upon which it stood its columns towers windows of coloured glass, giving it first one aspect, then another. A man approaching the rise from one angle might perceive a stronghold, yet from another he would swear the ruins of a church were standing in his way, while from a still a third an impression would come over him that this could be nothing more cherry than some vast mausoleum. And though the hand upon the door added to the building's stark character— it was not alone. High above, resting in the shadow of the battlements and confined within the cage, laid a cage, lay the decomposing body of a man. Its clothes were gypsy tatters, its arms, having been thrust through the bars, hung loosely before it. The hands were still clasped together. It seemed to Cairn that the wretch, to his last, must have been pleading for his knife. Gazing at the corpse, Cairn wondered what it would be like to be trapped there, to be confined so near the remains of a man whose heart, at least once, must have beat with the same cowardly rhythm as his own. Such thoughts were not the norm for Cairn, but this day his heart and lungs were filled with their new energy. It was defiant and yearning, like a great tide it swept over his fears to bury them beneath murky waters, leaving behind a taste for forbidden things. It was willing to move him into danger, this energy. Pushing the strangest of these thoughts aside, Kian reached for a handle. He placed his hand, pale as it was, over the black iron and felt the mysteries of the building rush out to meet him. He knew now why his brother Michael loved this place, gaining in a single touch some intimation of the power held behind these walls. Perhaps, Cairn thought, it was a power only scholars and monks might truly measure. There were no guards and the last man to breach the sanctity of the library. To enter it without permission, smiled down at Cairn from the battlements. That broken-toothed grin was now the only expression the gypsy would ever bear. Cairn opened the door, Its hinges protested loudly against each burst of his strength, but once inside he could hear the librarian working no more than an aisle or two away. It was dark, and the smell of decaying books overtook the rancid scent of death from outside. He limped forward. Are you there? Cairn asked cautiously. Is it you? There came a pause in the sound of books being moved along the shelves, and suddenly— as if there had been no reason to fear all along, an old man came out to greet Cairn, moving with a vitality that belied his age. Even in his grey years, the librarian seemed everything Kian was not. Funar was large and smooth with the presence of a warrior. His garments hung on him as if each tatter had occurred but recently and in the heat of battle. In one hand he carried a small volume, bound in leather. In the other, but he had no other. His right hand had been replaced by a bit of metal some three years earlier, and was now a hook from which a lantern hung. "'He isn't here, is he?' Cairn asked. He continued to look cautiously about. "'Michael, I mean.' Funar shook his head negatively. "'causing an amulet about his neck to rattle against its chain. "'Our royal scholar is off putting quill to paper. "'The quill itself is exquisite, a divine piece inlaid with gold. "'A gift from your father. "'I believe Michael is in love with it.' "'Funar laughed. (laughs) "'The pity. "'You should have been the scholar, Cairn. "'You have the it, but I suppose he's made a horseman of you.' In response, Cairn gave but a weak smile, fighting as best he could the urge to turn and run. But then something caught his eye, and he remembered his reason for coming. "'Don't be afraid, boy. Walk the son of our lord. You are that, aren't you?' Funa's voice assaulted and buoyed Cairn's spirit all at once. "'Even the master's fifth son could go where he pleases.' But let's have a look at you. Haven't really seen you since you became a man. eighteen now, eh? Is that it? Kian asked, his eyes fixed on the book in Funar's hand, on its worn cover and the rough edges of the paper within. He licked his lips. Were my messengers clear about what I wanted? Oh clear enough, though I wish you'd come to me yourself. "'These days even trusted servants can't be trusted. Now, "'Your father's spies are everywhere. "'I had my own men verify the story.' "'Is that it?' Cairn repeated. "'No, not this,' the librarian answered. "'This is a simple book of curses. "'Your father ordered it from the city of Cluj, "'and I have yet to inform him of its arrival.' What you want that I have at my desk. Come. As Cairn took a stride to follow, he found Funa swinging about suddenly to block his way. But remember, Cairn, it's not enough for you to be the good boy. You were always that, always obeying your father and those howling brothers of yours. If you want what I have to give you, you'll have to find the creature you've curled and hidden away inside yourself. It's time for you to be a true man.' "'I have no beast inside,' Cairn said honestly. "'Not like what you mean, Funa. I'm hollow.' The big man laughed and led them into the building. It was difficult for Cairn to keep up, and when at last the light of the lantern seemed lost, he hurried along behind it into the vaulting darkness. "'The woman you seek to win, Funar asked. Does she mind that leg of yours? They had arrived deep in the recesses of the library. They stood about Funar's desk. It had been set into a small vault which served for the librarian's office. And there were iron gates for doors. It was cold, and the few candles burning at the edges of the desk and the lantern on Funar's hook gave no heat. On the side of the desk lay a huge tome, almost hidden in the shadows, and yet it caught Cairn's eye immediately. From what he could see, it was a thick, ribbed volume bound in leather, and it worked an impression on him more deeply disturbing than the hand which had been nailed to the library door. It gave the illusion that it was absorbing the light of the candles without reflecting it. Though it was all but impossible to see clearly under such circumstances, Kian believed the book had been chained to Funar's desk. He had to get closer. What's that? Kian could not resist asking as he moved toward the edge of the desk that Librarian blocked his way, snuffing out those few candles nearest the volume. Nothing you want to be involved with, Funar boomed critically. Something newly arrived. Came in from Cluj with a book of curses, and I haven't had the time to take its measure. Now, I asked you a question, boy. Does she mind that leg of yours? I told her I fell from a horse. Cairn answered, and that's true enough. Once I failed to clear a hurdle, and Father threw me from the saddle in the raid. But old man, you've teased me long enough. Do you have it? yes ken and there are few enough of these in the world from the darkness at the foot of his desk from some secret drawer Fuda pulled out an almost tiny book whose golden lettering seemed to glow adding its light to the room the verse of pochu translated from the ninth century chinese into romanian love poetry Cairn reacted quickly for the work, but Funar pulled it aside. When Cairn tried again, it was the same result. Puzzled, then thinking it a matter of the agreed-upon payment, Cairn reached to his belt. The purse he had tied there jingled as he loosed it. The coins within made a musical sound as they were tossed about on the desk. Take the advice of a wise man, Funar said. "'Forget this woman and your schemes. "'You will bring only harm to yourself and to her. I'll "'Leave now, and word of this will never pass my lips.' "'No. How goes it, then?' Funa asked. "'Teaching your love to read?' "'Without answering, Cairn tried again for the book, "'yet this time the librarian secured it within the folds of his tattered cloak. "'The hook and lantern moved threateningly to guard it. "'Fool!' boomed the big man. First, make me believe she's worth the risk. I lost a hand betraying your father's interest once, and all the silver in your purse won't bring it back. There's a gypsy out front, a poor caged bird whose only daughter was burned alive in a pyre of books. I'd sold him. Now, helping you win the heart of a peasant girl is treachery. Yes, it is, and if all that weren't bad enough. You've chosen, I hear, a Hungarian suite a descendant of Magyar dogs. Cairn's blood stirred. Do you deny it? His eyes flashed, yet Cairn's voice did not rise to anger. Instead he paused as in thought, forming for himself the words that might break Funar's resistance. Nothing, Cairn said, Nothing which we are to know in this world equals the power of her beauty. She is a stem of glass, a fragile rose, a petal locked in a crystal. All that is frail and weak and wanting in this world can be perceived in her eyes. And when her hands arrive in mine, they come to me silent as the winter, more gently than snow. I will teach her to read, to be Romanian and to charm my father's heart. It is I who am the fool, Frunar admitted, for believing such dreams and for letting you hang us all. I know you, old man, said Cairn. You would defy my father with your last breath. You're right. With that, Frunar brought forth the gold-leafed volume and handed it to Cairn who quickly hid the treasure within the folds of his garments. At the door of the library, Kian turned back to the larger man, meeting Funar's gaze eye to eye. That book in your hand, Kian said. The one of curses. Will you use it against my father? No, Funa assured him. It has no power, this small one. Your father bade me acquire it because of the stories surrounding it, you understand? How it helped one king curse his enemies, or another to see his future in the stars, but true books of power have no such tales? How do you know? But Funa only laughed and sent Cairn on his way. A mournful wind accompanied Cairn on his way to the village. After taking a horse from the stables at the keep, he rode out, as he told the stable-boy, to practice for the autumn fair. There was soon to be yet another race his father would expect him to win. He passed graveyard and monastery, always keeping the library and his family's stronghold to his back. The keep, with its portcullis and many battlements, and the library, when taken together, appeared to rise above the mountain pass like sentinels. They were grey and resolute guards of Gassadin independence, and yet what shadows, what chained darkness the valley possessed, seemed to be focused here, between two of them. Elsewhere sunlight fell as fluid as laughter, and it cheered Cairn greatly to reach the limits of the town. He first passed the garrison, Small stone building where the guards bowed slightly and let Cairn pass without question. Next came a silversmith's shop, then a tavern. Cairn smiled as he heard from within the strains of a bawdy drinking song. It was one of his brothers had taught him. Harvests were in, and the streets had become thick with carts. Everywhere, knots of farmers and villagers engaged one another in rounds of lively bartering. Yet, as Cairn's mount trotted about the corner where the apothecary stood, he noticed more than a few of the faces glancing his way with suspicion. His family was not well-loved, and the appearance of a prince, even the fifth, and by reputation the most harmless of the seven sons, did not go unnoticed, nor did it fail to arouse concern. In return, Cairn smiled. They had seen him in town, and that in itself was fit enough for his plan. Now he brought his horse about toward the crossroads and open land, slipping out through a back street where few eyes might see him pass. Barns, pitchforks, and the tents of a gypsy camp glittered in this noonday sun. But Cairn rode on, spurring his mount toward one of the most distant points in the valley. Along the way he looked up into the snow-covered mountains and found himself distrusting them, as though their stones even now might be in cold communion with his father. The trees themselves seemed to whisper evil things at his passing, the voice eager to reveal the secrets, his secrets, to anyone who asked. At last, after leaving many an unsuspected turn in its path through fields, woods and mountain streams, Cairn came out along the holdings of Jakab the farmer. From miles away he could see the house, a column of smoke rising from its chimney. But Cairn had not gone far before he realized something was wrong. He noticed that even his mount tensed, as he had been taught horses to do before the onset of battle. But where ahead was the enemy waiting for his charge? With his heart rising in his throat, Cairn tried to reason. The smoke from the chimney, as he drew closer, it seemed wrong somehow, brutish and thicker than normal. Now he could see horses where no horses should be. They were tied before the house. He spurred his mount, commanding it headlong into the oar of danger that lay before them. As the distance closed, Kian realized that he was utterly unprepared. No sword hung at his side and no blade lay hidden beneath his cloak. At his belt his purse hung hollow, swinging empty with each jaunt of hooves against the hard ground. It told him there would be no bribes he could pay this day, and yet with all that was in him he beheld the face of Diana as he had last seen her. Green eyes and soft lashes beckoned him. The innocence of her voice, like light on a distant sea, drew him on. Closer and closer, and Cairn prayed for some new and violent strength to overtake him, to drive him victoriously through whatever enemies lay ahead. But the opposite proved out. For what little determination remained in him failed, vanishing in the instant he recognized the horses golden bridles and silver bells, the expertly stitched saddle leather that only a royal family might afford, these looters, these pirates, these wanton criminals who had invaded the household of his love, they were his family. His brothers and his father were here. Kian dismounted in a single, jarring action, practically flying from the saddle, His injured leg stabbed at him as though it was freshly broken, but he paid it no more attention than the scratch of a thorn in passing, nor did he stop to tie the horse before the little home, nor to catch his breath as he flew headlong through the open door. The scene which greeted him was that of a tavern torn apart by drunken bullies. A table overturned blocked his way while the floor lay strewn with food, with bits of bread and half-eaten pieces of fruit. Someone had broken a cask of wine to flood the place, and every tapestry, oil-lamp, and small household treasure had been torn or smashed with that same cruel and invincible delight he had often seen his brothers use. A corpse lay near the fireplace, its right arm outstretched in the fire, and those flames which, in roaring, had once filled this room with the life and warmth, now ate away the flesh of the arm." searing it to its immortal bone. Cairn recognized the half-turned face. It was Diana's father. Waiting in the depths of the scene, with the stench of burning flesh all about, a shadowed form looked up to meet Cairn's gaze. In one hand it held a cup, in the other a half-empty flask of wine. Its eyes were remorseless and restless all at once, pale orbs lit only by the reflection of the flames, and its entire countenance was everything that is the worst in predators. To this creature, breathing and causing pain were one and the same, a truth Cairn knew all the more precisely because he knew its name. Father, Cairn said. Instinctively, he almost bowed forgetting for an instant his concerns for Diana. He could see only the scars, the anger, the inner living hatreds that had spent their years redoubling within the heart of this man, the Lord of Quesada. "'You disappoint me,' said his father, Nikolai of Casada. "'I expected you far earlier than this.' With the empty cup in his hand, he motioned about the room, the lesson is all but done now only upon the drawing of his next breath did kearn sense the others only as his heart ceased to thunder in his ears could he detect the laughter echoing from deeper in the house he heard the muffled screams while like the crack of bone his father's voice brought silence once again bring her here diana two of his brothers brought her in while two more came along behind. Beside her they were giants, laughing gods of the mountains, warriors whose berserker raids no regular army might hope to tame, but each knew the pride of their father, holding it more dearly and deeply to themselves and their own lives. There was Christian, the minstrel, with his lute dangling at his belt, and Nathan, the huntsman, with his most beautiful cap, set jauntingly above his brow, and with the jewelled sword of their ancestors ready in his hand. Alexander did no more than smile at Cairn, giving him that same knowing smile he had borne on the day of his knighthood. All these sights might have comforted Cairn in another place at another time, even the drunken lair of Feodor, the vainness of them all, might have seemed comical if in his hand, and with all his strength he were not holding Diana. At the sight of her, Cairn rushed forward, but two of his brothers pinned him, holding him against one wall while his father watched. If he could have expended all the life in his heart and lungs, used it in a single rush to break his brother's grip, he would have. He tried. But while Cairn's thoughts leapt like tongues of flame, and while, in all his life, his soul had never burned more brightly, the strength of his arms proved no equal to the forces holding him nor even to the evil laughter in the room. Cairn! Cairn! Diana called his name. Her lips were swollen, her eyes red with tears. Bruises lay like tattooed patterns on her forearms and her cheeks. Fyodor! Christian! Let her go! Cairn screamed, yet suddenly it became clear to Cairn that the forces surrounding him were caught up in some terrible frenzy, a bloodlust that grew all the stronger for his protest, that fed upon his fear. Though they wore leathers and swords, though their beards were trimmed and their rings jewelled, and though golden chains dangled about their necks, here were animals. Whatever kinship may once have bound these creatures to Cairn was gone, in their hands now he has no relation but prey. Trapped and held in that instant before the killing blow. So Kian wants a woman. His father exploded in rage, a Hungarian animal to dilute our proud Dacian blood. Reaching out, the ruler of Cassada tore the sword from Alexander's hands. Its point surged wildly toward Diana. What wouldn't I have given you but this? Tears flowed freely down Cairn's cheeks. He could hear nothing but Diana's frightened breaths. Their quickness like that sound. So small. The cry that escapes a deer whose throat is in the jaws of a lion. In her eyes were wild, unknowing flames, and with each moment her struggles became more rhythmic, pulsing. It was as if something inside her knew it could not escape and now wished only to hurry the inevitable along kian wished he could talk to her but they were beyond all words the forces of darkness held them both and they might come together now only in so far as their twin racing hearts might burst each upon the same instant the jeweled blade rose between them and suddenly kian lost all sense of himself and of her and of the raging mad voice of his father, which overtook them all. This, then, is the only marriage you will have, Cairn of Cassada. But to Cairn the words meant nothing, and before him the universe went black. Warmth. Later he could remember the warmth of it, and the brightness, deeper than all roses, as they poured the wine down his throat, The cup was pressed against his lips. Voices urged him on. Drink! His throat opened and once again Cairn swallowed, swirling into a darkness, almost drowning in the glory of the wine. But it was not wine. It was blood. It was Diana's blood. Without identity, Cairn soared above a darkling sea, skimming ever closer to unseen waters almost remembering after a time the slightest of sounds came to him he recognized the hushed movement of servants he heard the centipede make its hurried maneuvers against the wall was it days or years since his thoughts last came together cairn couldn't say but at last And without opening his eyes, he knew his name. Once again, he took possession of his limbs, his breath, and his beating heart. He flexed the fingers of first one hand, then the next, and he knew that he was whole. By the sound and scent of things, by the very feel of the room about him, he was home. This room was his. The bed upon which he lay was his own, but something immutable had changed, or something he once thought to be immutable. It was Cairn he did not recognize. The familiar was now unfamiliar. No thought, no emotion, no sample from the cold schemes inhabiting his brain seemed like the Cairn of old. And most certain of all, he knew... His every weakness and hollowness had been filled. Where there had once been uncertainty, now there was stone. Where once passion flared, ice grew in fields of hoarfrost and rime, and all in him that had wanted kindness now wanted to be unkind. It was not revenge he sought, That word, in its slightest intimations, never occurred to Cairn. Instead, he most vividly remembered how it felt to be held against his will, to be powerless, to be the weakest reed, whose will is nothing beneath the tread of man, under the boot of his brothers. This he would never again endure. Power, he would have power. He would have more of it and wield it more certainly than ever his father had thought to do. By the time he rose and dressed, with mechanical, unthinking motions, Cairn had his plan more than half complete. He made for the stairs in a downward spiral to the hall. He heard the laughter of men sitting about the table. Sunlight was pouring in through slits in the stone meant for firing arrows. And Cairn realized his family was breaking their fast in the hall below, greeting morning with a hearty meal. The smells assaulted him. There was roast meat, garlic, and onions. The scent of blackened bread constricted his throat. He grew dizzy and nearly vomited. But still he forced his way along, maneuvering his feet down the curving stairs. "'It's alive!' Christian shouted at the sight of him. Kian wanted to curse them all, but he could not. When he opened his lips, he found he had no voice. The steaming, roiling sense of food, which only a moment before had repulsed him, now drew him on. Stumbling forward, he pushed his youngest brother, Peter, aside, and, to the sound of a chair falling, dishes smashing, a cry of protest, Cairn pulled a steaming shank of meat to his lips. Hands, throat, lips, they all burned at the passing of the juices. His teeth tore at the roasted flesh. When Theodore raised a dagger in alarm, Cairn raged at him through his clenched teeth. It was a wolf's growl, and it elicited howls of laughter from around the table. Cairn's father... His laughter overshadowing the rest, filled the chalice with wine and brought it around the table. He thrust it into his son's hands, and though half the contents were lost to the violence of the gesture, Kieran drank the rest in a single gulp. We thought the devil had you, his father said, that you might never wake. A shade of regret seemed to come alive in his father's voice. And was that a hint of shame manifesting behind those soulless eyes? If the cup in Cairn's hand had deigned to provide him but one additional drop of wine, he could not have cared the less. "'Welcome back, brother,' said Nathan the huntsman. "'Never saw man sleep like that. Days, and days of it. And hardly one breath out of you for sunrise. Well, we'll ride today, you and me. I'll put the wind back.' No! Cain yelled, or thought he yelled. The effect upon those who heard him was as if the king himself had issued a command. Indeed, his father met his gaze with the curiosity of one ruler taking his measure of a fellow king. Cairn filled his chalice and emptied it, throwing back his head as a liquid rushed in cool swallows down his tortured throat. He barely knew what he was about, but the plan, his plan, had to be attended to. The first steps were already overdue by an age or more, it seemed. ''I have decided,'' Cairn said, ''to take over the duties of the royal librarian. Funa will be dismissed and my own staff appointed. Father, do you?'' He had almost asked if his father agreed. Instead, he finished, "'Do you understand?' But whatever reactions he might have anticipated, laughter was not among them. Yet that was precisely what they did. It was somehow a great joke to them. Was it his agony, his transformation? Was it the sternness in his voice which caused them to double over in delight? It was as if the court jester were at hand, or as if he himself had taken over that playful task. Looking one to the other, they laughed. And of them all, it was his father who laughed the loudest and the longest. When Cairn reached the entrance to the library, he tore the hand from the door. First he broke its wretched grasp from the nail securing it. Then. Using all his weight and leverage, he eased the iron itself from the planks. This he threw as far from the door as he was able, and in that action, Cairn's attention was caught by a glint from above, by a reflection of light on silvered metal. He looked up. The gypsy corpse no longer inhabited its cage alone, but shared that space with a new apparition. This creature, though bloodied almost beyond recognition, sported a hook in place of one long-gone hand. The glint which had caught Cairn's eye was Funar's amulet, now hung, perhaps in jest, about the neck of the gypsy corpse. "'You look so small now,' said Cairn. At last he understood his father's good humour. And though it took him the balance of the morning and more daring than Cairn at first realized, he climbed the battlements and, once there, leaned dangerously away from ancient stones to retrieve the amulet. His injured legs stabbed at him. It became an agony which he welcomed and, strangely, sought to extend. He put the chain about his neck, but paused before pulling himself back to safety bringing his lips near to funar's ear he asked was it worth your life you were a fool he continued i shall not make the same mistake he descended into the depths of the library making his way without delay toward funar's vault the desk and the mysterious book he had last seen chained there after gathering lanterns from around the library lighting them and opening as many window-screens as he could reach. Cairn approached the book. The library beyond Funan's vault was alive with light. Bright patches of red and blue, falling from the stained glass, decorated the heavy timbers of the shelves and the dark volumes resting there. And then those beams, throughout their length and breadth, stirred the dust of ages past. Even Funar's vault was aglow with the yellow flames of the lanterns. To Kian, the place seemed a tomb, ancient and untouched. With a dry sound, the bodies of beetles, dead for centuries, crunched beneath his boots. I must stop thinking of this as Funar's place, Kian said aloud. It was as if the words he spoke were meant to break a spell to dissolve the feeling in his heart that he was intruding into a place that was not his. This is my desk now. The mysteries of this great book are mine to unravel. And the book itself had not moved, nor had it grown any less mysterious. Measuring three feet by two, with a ribbed spine thick as man's outstretched hand, the book seemed to weigh down the desk where it sat. To Cairn's amazement, the rough-hewn timbers had actually begun to sag. Then there was the matter of the chains. The links themselves were heavy, forged of a dark iron, and of a weight Cairn had seen used at Casada's keep, to raise and lower the portcullis. And it was not the desk to which the book had been chained but in this light it became clear that the holding spike had been driven into the floor of the vault. Were you trying to keep this from being stolen? Ken mused. He ran his fingers across the cold chains. He found the lock. Or is all this to restrain the book itself? To prevent its escape? Then suddenly... It didn't matter any more. Kian had to open the volume. His patience had vanished long ago, but as if recognizing that fact, upon that instant, he tore at the chains with bare hands. They came taut. They jangled. But they did not budge. Where had Funa hidden the key? Quickly, Kian fumbled through a dozen items on the desk through folders and small wooden boxes, then the drawers, in one envelope, its wax seal unbroken before Cairn opened it, there was a letter. From one ageing librarian to another, the correspondence read, it spoke of the Agrippa, ancient and dangerous. It was a book of power that no man had been able to tame, and what was known of its history could be told in a few words. It had entered Romania in the first century of the Christians, smuggled in by a general who commanded the conquering armies of Rome. Much later, the Agrippa fell into the hands of barbarians. From among them, the book brought to power a great leader, a warrior who set the tribes against their Roman conquerors. No more merciless, more maniacal fighters had ever before opposed the standard of Rome. And in 271 AD, the imperial eagle was driven from Dacia. But always it seemed the book itself was in control of the events surrounding it. No one dared to destroy it, but in time wise men chained its monstrous work in dark and hidden places, keeping all knowledge of it from ambitious men. In closing, The writer assured Funa that he was delighted to be rid of the Agrippa. The silver he received for it would ease the nightmares of his waning years. Cairn opened the glass of the nearest lantern and set the note to flame. As he watched the paper burn, it came to him where Funa would have placed the key, and in reaching down he found that he was right, in the same hidden compartment from which Funa had drawn the book of poems. Kian felt the steel of a key as long and cold as a finger from a dead man's hand. Though the key turned with difficulty, Kian released the Agrippa from its chain within seconds. He brushed the restraining links aside, then, holding his breath, he opened the cover. He might as well have pulled back the lid of a coffin or turned away the sealing stone from some ancient tomb. There was a breeze more known than felt, as it were a cold wind of the heart, and yet the flames of the lanterns faltered and grew dim. The scent was the scent of animals. Each black letter on the page, drawn by hand, caught and held his attention. They struck Cairn as if all truth were embodied in their straight dark runes of ink, and yet, he could not distinguish a single word this was no romanian alphabet nor were they hungarian letters nor even the ancient latin of the romans they were utterly and irresistibly alien heavy rough-edged pages turned beneath cairn's hands his eyes searched for repetition for some sense of letters used in the pattern of a language but every turn of that page and every drag of the quill upon these pages revealed no more to decay than a thousand upon a thousand different individual symbols. For his understanding, there was only the wind, that strange and featureless stirring of the air. It called to him, it whispered his name. From within the leaves of the Agrippa, an evil light began to seep forth, The whole enveloping strangeness of the situation was such that Cairn could not distinguish what of it was real or what of it, if any, was not. Like the glint of unexpected gold, the light of the Agrippa drew him closer. Bathed in its gold, his eyes began to make sense of the words upon the page. He saw his name. And then, without warning, it seemed to Cairn that a knife was driven through his teeth— the sudden, murderous force of the blow throwing him away from the desk. As he fell, the sense of the blade stayed with him. It drove into his tongue, filling his mouth with blood. Still, he saw nothing, his hands finding no enemy in the emptiness before him, no hilt of the knife at his lips. Yet the cut continued. It burned in Cain's throat and twisted into twin, unstoppable blades. One rushed upward to impale his brain. The second divided him into two equal rivers of pain. With relentless force, it cut open his heart, lungs and gut, mixing their blood along its razor edge. On hands and knees, Cain pulled himself from the chamber. Sunlight had disappeared from the corridors, and it was through a cold, musty darkness that he made his way. The light of the vault flickered behind him like yellow laughter. Coming to his feet near the library door, Cairn found himself enveloped in the blind rage. The pain of the unseen knife was gone, but in its place there came a remarkable sense of death. This sense... It was not of peace at the end of life, nor of the horror of dissolution, nor of rotting in the earth. It was instead a driving force, the death that dwells in the oceans of eternity and knows the passing of all mortal things, the death which eats them whole. With a single leap Kean grasped the bars of the cage in the battlements. He tore them open and reached within. He descended again to the ground it was with the cold heart of funa in his hand he had torn it from within the ribs of the corpse as if we were brushing aside a wall of reeds he had leapt to the battlements in return with the ease of stepping from his bed his leg no longer knew the pain of having been broken nor of having healed badly yet this improvement kian did not notice with no trace of revulsion he brought the dead flesh to his lips. He began to eat, and with each swallow, with each dread morsel that fell like ice down his throat. The valley dimmed. Step by step it fell beneath a curse more powerful than any mere words could have conjured. Kean did not see his family for the rest of that day, nor for all of the next. He wandered about the valley. In a fever his thoughts raced. Images and schemes filled his skull until it became like a hive, a humming thing alive with the bits of disconnected but deadly plans. He ventured into the cemetery and there watched another rush of clouds overtake the sun. It did not seem enough that in the course of a day he had unalterably changed, where once there had been timidness and the hollow uncertainties of youth, now nestled a dread cruelty. It filled and infected him. Not only had Cairn the power to inflict great harm, the desire for it now overwhelmed him. So strong became the urge to kill that Cairn shook from its force, it exhausted him. Laying down amid the carved stones, he fell immediately into a fevered sleep. Sleep it was. Yet to sleep without rest, almost from the first instant Cairn found himself at the centre of a terrible dream. He looked out upon the world through the eyes of another man, a nameless creature whose heart beat as coldly as his own. The man was walking the dirt streets of Quesada, approaching the tavern with even unhurried steps. Through the window lanterns and torches could be seen burning and the silhouettes of many customers, raising their tankers of ale, could be seen blocks away through the misty night. The light-hearted music filtered into the streets. The stranger entered the tavern. He looked about. Cairn, it seemed, watched through those same eyes. He heard the music fade and cease. He knew the sudden quieting voices as the many faces in the tavern turned his way and overriding all the immense knowledge of a nightmare unfolding. Before he saw him, Kian knew he was there. Or the stranger knew. It was one and the same. Somewhere in the crowd sat his brother Alexander. But before it became necessary to expend effort in the search, Alexander made himself known. He introduced himself, coming forward through the crowd as though he owned the place. What land hail you from?" asked Alexander, his left hand rested on the hilt of his jewelled sword. He came close, and by the angle of his eyes, it seemed to care that the stranger must be taller from the dens of wolves, answered the stranger, from the darkness across the sea. Come now, said Alexander, turning to the barkeep he added. An ale for this dim fellow who travels our night in ashen robes. But, sir, I ask again urgently, from where do you hail? The stranger accepted the ale proffered and seated himself with a sigh at the nearest table. He drank deeply and sighed again. But in Cairn's dream, union with the man, it seemed the bitter dregs from the bottom of all barrels had become lodged in his throat. The roots of mountains the stranger said. I come from the grave of the sun. Were you drunk when you entered, man? Alexander asked. It's poor practice to insult us so. And wherever you're from, how did you pass the keep without answering to my guards? No one makes it up that path without our knowing. I did, the stranger answered. He drank again. Or rather, I sailed in from the north. A timid laughter erupted in the tavern. Men were making way. Moving without hurry, perhaps, even without thought toward the lanterns along the walls. They left Alexander and the stranger alone in the circle of their shadows. To the north, my friend, said Alexander. Lie the Carpathian Alps. You'll find we showed little love to our unannounced guests. He stood suddenly, drawing his sword and damned little courtesy to lies. It was as if a red shade had been pulled down across Cairn's dream. The world swam in its crimson light, and the stranger prepared to stand, but though his muscles tensed, to everyone else in the room he appeared motionless. "'I say again,' Alexander growled, "'what business have you in Casada?" his brother rested the point of his blade on the table. With a turn of his head, he signalled one of his men to bring reinforcements, guards from the town's garrison. As he watched the man exit the tavern, the stranger smiled. Are you afraid, then, of a teacher? I fear no man, Alexander howled. He raised the sword. And I need no lessons. The blade flashed, glinting yellow in the tavern's light. With preternatural speed, the stranger was out of his chair. He rose. Somehow he avoided the blow, and Alexander's strength sent the edge of his weapon into the table, deep in the wood. In the next instant, the stranger had his hands about Alexander's waist. Their faces came close, and, as their cheeks touched, the stranger drew in Alexander's breath, feeling the heat of the exhalation rise through his own nostrils. In that closeness... He made his move. His hands, like scythes, moved through Alexander's chest, brushing aside mortal bone and ribs as if they were willow branches. Alexander's face went rigid with astonishment. His rage vanished in an instant, to be replaced by the unseen mask of death. Withdrawing those hands, the stranger moved, "'turning his gory grip to the hilt of Alexander's sword "'and pulling at the blade, wrenching it from the table. "'Next he brought it around, "'neatly severing Alexander's head from his shoulders with a single blow. "'Silence!' "'Keon heard the pounding of soldiers' boots in the street, "'yet from the stranger he knew only a coolness "'to match the snow of the mountain peaks. "'A lesson for Cassada, the stranger said laughing as he lifted Alexander's head from the floor. He moved to the bar, there depositing the severed head as though he were tossing a bag of coins upon the wood. A nail, you pigs. I'm paying for a nail. But before the dark one could drink, Alexander's man was through the door and the soldiers behind. Their blades surrounded the stranger with leather strips. They bound him in seconds. Handling his strength, as if arresting a common brawler. Indeed, it seemed as if the stranger had lost whatever strength he had, or had exhausted himself in the killing of Cairn's brother. The stranger's only response was to laugh, and it was to the music of that laughter, hysterical as it was, that he was pulled from the tavern to be hanged. Then Cairn passed from the dream and back into the cold night of the cemetery, There he lay, face down among the gravestones. His teeth were bared, his tongue cold against the earth. When morning came, it was as if the sun were dying, for though it remained aloft, it seemed stricken with some mortal wound. Above the sky rushed with clouds, scudding grey and black monsters which did all they could to blot out the failing light. Still, though only a remnant of that sun, a dim shield, struggling to remain just behind the clouds, rose into morning. It hurt Cairn. His blood burned, and rising from the mists of the cemetery, he hurried home. The keep was familiar and unfamiliar all at once. The stones were the same. The same guards stood before it with their knives and their bows, Yet the feeling of the entire place had been transformed into a scene of such startling emotion that it took Cairn off his guard. He paused, and to his amazement the guards backed away. No longer was the gate strong, the walls formidable, the tower impregnable. Their illusions of power had vanished. To his right and to his left the guards watched him, backing away like frightened dogs. And in Cair's imagination, it was as if the keep had been replaced by the painted props of a stage. All was now backdrop and paper, to be torn through as easily as if he were a child at play. But Cairn was no child, and this was no game. What he was feeling was a reality of what he had become, something unknown, something new, and he had to admit... "'immensely evil. "'It was a truth others seemed to grasp at once. "'Serving women screamed as he entered the hall, "'and men scurried into hiding. "'For all the world it was as if a predator "'were now prowling the keep. "'Yet it was not Cairn's concern "'to sow terror among such unimportant beings. "'He headed straight for his father's room. "'Inside the keep, "'away from the light of the sun, it appeared to Cairn that he grew stronger still, his blood no longer burned. And as he approached the oaken door of his father's room, a determination grew in him that was like the ice of glaciers breaking into the sea. Placing his hands upon the door, Cairn tensed. He heard the voice of Nikolai, the Lord of Kassada. His father was shouting and screaming within, the sound of a whip cracked in the air. Without a pause, Cairn dug his fingers into the door. The hinges creaked. Planks of solid oak buckled and sent streaks of dust into the air. As the door gave way, Cairn burst into the room. So suddenly and with such supernatural speed did Cairn enter the room that, for an instant, he saw things as though he were a thief in the shadows. A girl lay tied and bleeding. From the few words he had been able to discern... Cain knew her situation. She had been accused of theft. It was then that a the townsfolk had brought her before the Lord, Cain's father, and now he sought the truth of things at the end of the whip. When he burst through the door, that whip had been arcing back. And now it lashed near Cain's cheek. Yet to his new eyes the blood flecked tip crawled forward, providing a little challenge when he reached to snatch it from the air. He pulled the whip from his father's grasp, spinning the older man around. With a growl, Cairn moved forward, past his father. His fingernails, like razors, cut through the leather straps binding the girl. She looked up at him. She was golden-haired and fair-complexioned, a beauty in the perfection of her youth. Yet her lips contorted as her eyes caught his. Her gaze filled with fear. Leave here! Ken said simply. He pulled her up and pushed her toward the door. She stumbled over the broken planks and vanished into the keep, leaving behind only her blood and the soft, fading sounds of her sobs. In a heartbeat, Ken turned his attention to his father, the Lord of Quesada, had drawn a knife, taking up a defensive crouch as though he were about to combat an assassin. In fact, Though his motions seemed as slow to Cairn as those of a corpse, his father was circling, getting ready to lunge. "'It's you,' his father said as a beam from a lantern revealed Cairn's face. "'Yes, father,' said Cairn. "'I'm back.' The Lord of Cassada smiled. Suddenly the tension disappeared from his face, and he began to laugh. "'Is this some lesson you hope to teach me?' he said. By saving a peasant girl? Cairn, too, smiled. Yet for him it was more a bearing of teeth, that moment of tension in which a predator unsheathes its fangs before the lunge. Toward his father he felt no fear, no love, no emotion whatever coursed through his veins. There was only blood which rushed without rhythm. It filled him with the cold to rival the mountains and their icy peaks. No lesson, father, Ken replied. I hadn't thought to save her, only to thwart you. If I had caused her pain, you would have thought I was joining in your pleasures. Perhaps so. Ken's father kept the knife he had drawn level with his waist. As he turned it, Cairn could see light glinting of its finely owned blade. He watched his father's eyes move quickly to take in the shattered door with a single glance. Then they grew pale, as they always did in the moments before someone was to die. Your brother Alexander died last night. They say the man who took him was possessed of great strength. Did they say they hanged that man? asked Cairn. So they say. I would have had the guards impaled for saying less. Kian made his move, like the fall of a shadow. He stepped forward. The blade flashed. Kian caught the hand that held it, feeling his father rush in against him. Now, no more than a hand's breadth separated the two, Kian found his father's strength more than he had anticipated. The old lion was testing him. "'feeling him out with each twitch of muscle "'and every bending of the joints. "'For a mortal, he was immensely strong, "'but Cairn held him, nearly lifting him from the floor. "'From his deepest parts, Cairn felt a surge of desire, "'of some new realization. "'No hope, no wish, no plan for the future "'would ever hold this same promise. "'At last he had become his father's master. "'Never again would he be afraid.' Yet even in this victory, in the instant of his realization, an image of Diana came to him. That part of him which had loved her remembered, alone in him, isolated. It knew that she could never love him as he was now. Cairn growled. The thought disturbed him. It worked curiously against the joy of his new-found strength, and he despaired. With that despair cold inside him, Cairn released his father's hand, letting the blade drive deep. It entered him like fire and turned between his ribs. Kill me, he whispered, his lips all but caressing his father's ear. You destroyed my love. You tried to destroy me. Destroy me now. Yet the strength of the blade, tearing inside him, did little, to weaken Cairn. Its presence became as nothing, a touch of winter air, and the futility of it angered him. At the height of his anger, Cairn's lips came against his father's skin. His teeth, like blades, tore the neck, the hot flesh. Once more he held the Lord of Cassada motionless, and the blood rushed into his mouth. "'It developed his tongue and coursed like wine down his throat. "'And though his father struggled, "'all his force was without meaning "'against the cold iron strength that Kian possessed. "'And when at last he felt his father's heart about to burst, Kian let him go. "'He let him stumble back, drunk with fear, into the shadows. "'Oh, I will kill you, father.' Cairn promised, but not today. Many years will pass, with you dreading the hours, the days until I come again. With one hand, Cairn reached to his side, there to pull the blade of his father's knife from his ribs. He held it before him, the edge glinted in the light, bloodless. Perhaps I'll use this, or perhaps a stranger will. Another of the dark ones, of the kind who found Alexander. But first I want you to see the others die, Nathan and Christian, Theodore and the rest. Watch them die. And when each sun falls, you'll know your own time comes closer still. I know you, father. You'll use the time well. Try to find me. Try to hunt me down. To learn what I've become. You won't succeed. And you won't run. And near the last, perhaps you'll find some wise man to give you a hopeful prophecy. Or perhaps, you'll write one yourself. But always, I will be there. In the shadows, remembering the taste of your blood. And with that, Kian turned stepping without sound across the shattered beams, stepping beyond his father's door and into history. Veil of Darkness, Epilogue Returning to the library, Cairn gathered up the book and its chains, intent on placing the volume beyond the reach of man. As he did this, a gleam of gold caught his eye, It was one of the lanterns, yet he was not certain it remained a lantern, for some force, some power beyond his understanding had transformed the glass to shining panels, the brass to iron hinges, and within burned a fire, barely seen through the finest of cracks. Without words, a sense of understanding passed between the Agrippa and Cairn. He knew what lay hidden behind the glint of the strange coffer. Imprisoned there was the light of Cassada, the very warmth of sun and heaven captured in the box. With a laugh, Cairn gathered the lantern to him, carrying it along with the book and its chains out into the midday dark. What lay before him now he could barely imagine? Centuries of strength, of an unyielding, merciless strength, a veil of darkness, which would fall forever over his soul and the valley both like a disease a dark would spread, relentless as it sought to bleed the men and the women of the valley, transforming them without pity into creatures of an evil night. From time to time Cairn himself would seek release. In the heat of battle he would hope an opponent might take him down, praying that one, at last, might destroy his tortured form and send his soul to hell. And when this did not happen, For long ages he would forget and settle into an evil rule. Unconsciously it began, one by one, sometimes centuries apart. Cairn would lure brave men into the valley. He challenged those few who might at last set him on the road to hell. But none, it seemed, proved ever more than diversions. From their agony he gleaned, but the joy of brief and deadly games.